Well, Christmas carols, of course, are some of the most familiar and well-loved hymns in all the world. Um, in our day and age, someone may not know many of the words to a hymn like And Can It Be or Rock of Ages, um, but they might yet be very familiar with the words of O Come All Ye Faithful or Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, that's because Christmas, at least in some degree, has still survived in popular culture, though some certainly put it down. But it, it does give a certain sense of joy and kindness and and even to those who are not religious, they enjoy the celebration of Christmas. And if you enjoy the celebration of Christmas, you can only obscure it so much from its true meaning before you sort of lose the whole thing. Uh, so the carols that we sing, the hymns of Christmas, stay around. And they're played on, on radio stations that typically only play non-Christian music. And they're hummed and sung by those who, who may or may not take much time to reflect on their words. But for our purpose, the carols are not only very familiar, but they're also unique in that they really give some of the most biblically rich songs that we have. And of course, there are some carols that, that stretch the details or get things wrong, and that's one thing. But by and large, Christmas carols, the the songs, the hymns of Christ's advent are full of truth. They're a unique blend of, of Old Testament prophecy, of New Testament fulfillment, and of, of theological summary of what all of that means in the coming of Christ. There are, for instance, favorite hymns that touch on one or two subjects, like Great is Thy Faithfulness. But the Christmas carols really excel at putting the big picture and story of the Bible together. Just as the Bible sets a stage and opens a curtain for Jesus Christ, I think the Christmas carols do justice to that goal as they highlight and help to instill in our thinking through rhythms and rhymes the very truths that God has designed, his plan of salvation and redemption through Jesus Christ. Now, with all that, and I love Christmas carols as much as you do, but we should say that the, the point of this is not to study the Christmas carols. I would not be doing my job very well if that's what we were doing today. But it's not as the Christmas carols are, are some secondary sacred text that we can go to during the Advent season. No, rather the, the goal is to glean from some of their richness and the hard work of, of Christians who have put the work of hymn writing in because what they've done is they've knit these themes of scripture together for us. And what we're gonna do is primarily see a little more depth, some of the scriptures that lie behind these tunes. So this week, we'll start with the one that we just sang, which is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And we see that that song really shows us that the long expected first coming of the Messiah gives immense hope as we desire him even still. And that goes with our theme this week in Advent of hope also. The hymn was written by Charles Wesley. It was published in a, a whole hymnal that he wrote in 1740s just for hymns of the nativity. And uh, all of Wesley's hymns are uniquely rich in scripture. And uh, to be honest, when you read down through the text of that song um, in I, when I did that this week and just jotted down, looked up the scriptural allusions in it, uh, there would be very difficult to even read every passage of the Bible this morning that the song touches on, let alone study them. So for this morning, we've picked four 
uh, four different lines to look at. If you have your bulletin, you'll see it on the back page there. And, uh, and these four different lines sort of give us a past, present, future view of Christ's coming. They highlight his birth. It's where it starts off. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. They highlight his purpose. They highlight his current rule, his lordship. And they also highlight the future that he promises for his people. It is the Christmas message, yes, but it's really the gospel message, the Bible message, all wrapped up together. So I want to go first this morning to Hebrews chapter number two. And we'll start in on that line where the where the song opens as we sang, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Freedom is a theme, of course, that rings out throughout all of Scripture. Uh, there's a big sense in which the ideas of, of bondage and freedom are a, a major theme of the Bible. They follow all the way through. From the family of, of Joseph in Genesis, who went down to Egypt as, as guests, and they went there as refugees, they left as escapees and prisoners to the divided kingdoms of, of Israel and Judah later on in the history of the Old Testament and their captivities, all the way to the Roman-controlled Israel that we find at the time of Jesus Christ, God has sort of set a stage in all of these narratives for the idea of bondage and freedom to take on a big meaning when it comes to the Messiah. The Lord, God, had proven to be a deliverer to his people time and time again, but all of their former deliverances would not suffice to keep them free in one way or the other. There would be a continual slavery until Christ came. So the question then becomes, what would this ultimate deliverance be? What would it be like? What would it be from? Well, we see in a very, that in a very big sense here in Hebrews chapter 2. And I want to read verses 14 and 15, which say this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now hear the imagery in that. Verse In his coming, which we get this idea of the incarnation, Christ took on flesh and he did so to accomplish the work of redemption, winning freedom here. In this case, the freedom seems to be from death. And I love the way it speaks of it. It says he went through death in order to destroy death. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. We're familiar with the common phrase, right? With Smokey the Bear and, uh, you know, only you can prevent forest fire. And when you do have forest fire, you fight fire with fire. And that's often true that uh, spend some time burning around the, the perimeter fire to get stop the fuel in the forest from burning. Well, in a very big sense, Christ here fought death with death. He defeated death through death. 
The deliverance that we read of here in Hebrews 2 is, is that which stems from fear. Look at verse 15 again. He, he came to destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because of the fear of death, we were subject to slavery. Fear of death is a motivator. You can motivate people to do a lot of things through the fear of death. And really the only way to be delivered from that trap is to abolish that fear. And the only one who could abolish that fear is one who could walk through death and come out triumphantly. And of course, that is our Lord, Jesus Christ. In a very similar way, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul speaks of these things. Romans 6, uh, beginning in verse number 9. Turn there if you'd like to, but I'll go ahead and read it. Romans 6, verses 9 through 11. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul takes the same theme as the author of Hebrews and speaking of Christ's death and his deliverance as a death to sin, a once for all, he's no longer subject to it. And Paul's teaching throughout all of his letters is that we have Christ's wonderful work given to us, put to us, or applied to our account. So in this sense, Christ's death for us was our death. And Christ's new life for his people, for us, is our new life. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, free from this bondage to death. And this freedom has eternal consequences. Of course, the life that is won for us is everlasting, but it also has has current consequences as well. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul says in verse number 11 that we who are dead with Christ in that sense must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are told to consider ourselves dead to sin. That is the very slavery that we were in because of fear, all of that tension, all of, all of that energy that went into fear because of death has been defeated, and we must consider that tension to be dead so that we are then dead to sin, no longer motivated by death, no longer having it sway over our head, but rather we are alive to Christ. And later on in Romans 6, Paul expands on that theme Look at down at verse number 22, if you have your Bible open in Romans 6. He says, now, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, interesting comparison, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice where this train leads. It leads to eternal life, which is why Christ's advent deliverance was the ultimate deliverance that was never fulfilled before. 
It wasn't fulfilled in the Exodus. It, it wasn't fulfilled in the rebuilding of Jerusalem by Nehemiah. It is fulfilled, though, in Jesus Christ, who defeated death through death, taking our sin and giving the free gift of eternal life. And notice that comparison in verse 23 that's always so potent. The wages of sin is death. That is earned, but the free gift That's not a reward that is earned, but a free gift through Jesus Christ is eternal life. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. And the hymn goes on, from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. And then it's this interesting line, beautiful line, Israel's strength and consolation. Israel's strength and consolation. Christ is deliverer once for all time, defeating death. And rightly we can say it is, it is for his people. He's a deliverer of his people. Of course, which is not just Israel, but people from every tongue and nation, all who Christ calls to himself. And while it's not just for the people Israel nationally, At the same time, the Advent story, the coming of Jesus, does happen or did happen within history. And that's one of the marvels of the way God reveals himself. Uh, God is not just working in, in summaries and statements, but he also works in history. And the history of God's people is really a history of promises made and promises kept. We find those in big picture form, some of which we'll look at this year, I'm sure, like prophecies in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Micah 5, but we also see them, and one in particular, in a small format, like with the story of a man named Simeon. And that's where this little line in that hymn comes from, Israel's strength and consolation. We don't have the time to do all the details of who Simeon was and what he did, but suffice to say, Simeon was a faithful and devout man a man who God told that he would see the Messiah. Now, Matt read uh, this passage beginning in Luke 2, 22, uh, in the middle of our worship service. But I want to just highlight verse number 25 for a minute, which says this, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Imagine being given that specific promise and and think of Simeon's life and his faith to believe this promise. Right up to the very end, he believed that he would see just what God had told him he would see. And he went faithfully day in, day out to the temple. And on this day, he was there in the general court, the court of women, like he had probably passed through so many times And he had seen so many young couples bringing their firstborn son to offer the appropriate sacrifices like this. But this time, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Simeon saw something different. He saw what was promised, the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, the Deliverer. He was here. If you read through the rest of that passage in Luke 2, Simeon's prayer or Simeon's song, however you want to think about it, uh, it tells the rest of the story. And my favorite part, I believe, is, and I'll paraphrase, 
Lord, I am ready to die now because I've seen him. Your salvation, your deliverer, a light of revelation and the glory of your people. Can you think of that? To be so enthralled and so faith focused in God's promise that having seen the answer to that, even just in the form of a baby, you can say, I can die now. I've seen enough. Jesus was just that and is just that. He is a light of revelation to the Gentiles, as Simeon said, to those who are far off, to those outside the promises. Through Jesus, we find that they were really not that far outside at all. We were, of course, but Christ came to bridge that gap. And the glory of his people, Israel. Israel has a wonderful history, uh, many amazing accounts of God's faithfulness and goodness. But of all the things that God did physically through the people of Israel, the most wonderful thing is that he brought Jesus Christ through the seed of David, through a virgin Mary, that special miraculous conception born a sinless boy and carried in by Joseph and Mary on this day in the temple where Simeon saw him and took him in his arms and said, Lord, I can depart in peace. We're told that Simeon was waiting in verse 25 for the consolation of Israel. Consolation is, is comfort. It's, it's help. That little baby was the answer to Simeon's waiting. That little infant was the answer. Christ was that comfort, that strength, and that help. Of course, the Lord has always been the help of his people. Joel chapter three, verse 16 puts it so beautifully. The prophet Joel says this, the Lord, Yahweh, roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Of course, we know that Jesus Christ is that Lord, that Yahweh. He is that refuge, that stronghold. He came to set his people free and in Christ, you, through his blood, through his work, are grafted into that wonderful promise and family of God. We, as followers of Jesus, are just as much the people of God as Simeon was. And we can have the same joy and hopeful resignation in the fact that Christ, having fulfilled his promise, Lord, your work is as good as done. Christ was Israel's comfort. He was Simeon's comfort. So the question is, is he your comfort? Is he your consolation? The second verse of this hymn goes like this, as we sang, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, Rule in all our hearts alone. That's the third line we'll take a look at just briefly here. Of course, there are so many themes that were covered in that passage. So many passages of scripture probably popped into your head as they did mine. And hopefully we'll cover some of them in the weeks to come.
But one unique thing about this Christmas carol is how it makes application to our lives right now. And it does so by highlighting the kingship and the lordship of Christ. That Christ will rule and reign forever is is part of the big picture theme of Advent. It was a prophecy of Isaiah that he shall reign forever. In Sunday school, we saw it, or we see it in, in, a, in Revelation chapter 11, that he will reign forever. But also, as we've been seeing in Matthew, the kingdom, the, the kingship of Christ is as much within the hearts of his people as it is or will be in the big picture of world and governments and authorities. So we could say it's one thing to acknowledge that this God-man, this prophecy-fulfilling, miracle-working, revelation-giving Jesus is Lord over the earth, but it's entirely another thing to recognize that he must be Lord within your heart, within your mind. And as I thought on this, my mind went to Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 33, where the prophet says this, the word of the Lord, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. There it is, the, the idea of God ruling in hearts. And what was Jeremiah speaking of there? Well, he was speaking of what he called the new covenant or what God said would be a new covenant, a covenant that would include heart transformation, a covenant, of course, that would be and was brought by Christ. Moses, who received the tablets from God on Sinai and gave the law and wrote those down and many others in the first five books of the Bible, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. And the old covenant was not a bad covenant. It was not an evil covenant. It, it was from God, it was a blessing, it was a means which God designed and used to teach his people what he was like, to give them a way to live in, in holiness and in uprightness, to distinguish them from their neighbors and to give testimony to his glory. But at the same time, it was a covenant that was designed to be temporary. It was a covenant that was powerless to do the delivering that we've talked about. The old covenant was never meant to be the final say. So God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I will make a new one, a different one. And the author of Hebrews, back to Hebrews again, chapter eight, puts it this way. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent then the old, as the covenant he mediates, is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, what a wonderful picture. The old covenant was not bad, it was not evil. It just wasn't the final thing. So Christ, like Moses, only better, comes to mediate a covenant, like Moses, only much better much more excellent. And why? Because he says it was built on better promises. Now, what better promises is the author of Hebrews referring to? Well, if you look at Hebrews 8, if you have time, right after he says that, he quotes from Jeremiah 31, that passage that we just read. 
law written on our hearts, God being their God, people being his people, but there's even more as he, the author of Hebrews goes on and he quotes Jeremiah 31, 34, which says, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What are the better promises? Well, at least in large part, the better promises are forgiveness, is wiping away sins. And how is that accomplished? Through the mediator of this new covenant, the person of Jesus Christ. So we call for the Lord to rule in our hearts and we want him to have lordship within us. We want to live and consider ourselves as being dead to sin, like Paul said in Romans 6. But at the same time, the one who is Lord in our lives, who sees every detail and flaw and sin and misstep, is also the one who accomplished our forgiveness and makes it such that our sins are remembered no more. Does this Lord rule in your life? Does this king, this deliverer, this strength and consolation, are your sins remembered no more because of the coming of Jesus? We've seen then the past, the present. The past is that God's people over and over again need delivering. And he sent Jesus to be their ultimate deliverer. The past is that God promised his salvation would come and his salvation did come in the person of Jesus Christ. The present is that Christ is mediating right now a better covenant, a covenant of forgiveness and mercy through the gospel, a covenant of heart transformation, of the kingdom existing where men's hearts are bonded to Christ. Past, present, well, what is the future? Well, as the carol closed out, we sang this, by thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Now, what could have Charles Wesley meant by that phrase? Doesn't it seem pretentious to imagine being raised to the place where Christ is? I mean, it's wonderful that he offers salvation and forgiveness and peace and joy here on earth, but what place do we have being with Jesus? Well, of course, we find that that's exactly the point, isn't it? Before Jesus' departure, he gave the disciples this promise that if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. For God to deliver and redeem his people in such a way that we could once again return to that kind of dwelling, to that garden state. And I, I don't mean New Jersey. I mean the state of, of the Garden of Eden, where God dwelled and walked with man. What was the garden like? It was a perfect existence, no death, no disease, no chaos, no sadness. It was man and woman as God created them and God walking with man in the cool of the day. Think of it. You see, Christ's redemption of mankind is taking us back to that 
garden state. That state before there was sin, before there was death, before there was Jew and Gentile. It was just man and God. Man created in God's image with a purpose to tend and to keep the beauty of creation and God freely communing with his creation because there was no stain of sin which separates. That's where Christ in this mediation of the new covenant is taking his people back to. And the prophet Ezekiel speaks about that in chapter 37. This is very similar to Jeremiah, but he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them, the Lord says. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's the same promises as Jeremiah 31, just a little extended further out, I think. God's intention, listen, is to dwell with his people again. His intention is for us to constantly be near him, with him, in his presence. And think about it. Jesus' first advent did two things in this way. One, it gave a taste of that garden existence again. Here was a sinless person, the only one to walk the face of the earth since Adam and Eve took eat of that fruit. Here was a faultless one, Jesus, who is also God walking with man. Christ's advent gave a taste of that new covenant fulfillment, but it also kicked off that new covenant plan to restore all things back to where they were. A future state of perfection, of peace, of God walking freely in the midst of his people. Do you see what a wonderful path we are on in Christ Jesus? Do you see this progression from death to flourishing life, from prison to ultimate freedom, walking with God? This is the big story of Advent. And it's the wonder of what we sing about. It's the wonder of what we have to tell others about. Raise us to thy glorious throne. Now, of course, some of this promise is still future, isn't it? And it's yet to be seen by us. But God has, in his mercy, given us a taste of that even now. I want to close in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7 which read this way, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There is a present reality of a future fulfillment for Jesus' followers now. Spiritually, we read there that we are raised up already and seated with Christ. We are already transformed in this sense. The promise is as good as kept. 
sort of takes us back to Simeon, right? He saw the baby. Jesus hadn't even done his work yet, but he saw the opening pages of that fulfillment, and he said it's as good as done. In the same way as Paul writes these words to us now living in this world, we can see that even though we're still waiting for the fullness, the work of this ultimate redemption has started, and we can say it's as good as done for us. We can rest hopefully. We can resign ourselves faithfully to God's plan in Christ Jesus. So through all this, we could ask, have you been delivered by the true deliverer, Jesus? Have you found your strength and comfort in him alone? Is Christ your redeemer and the Lord of your life? And if so, do you find your ultimate rest and hope in the fact that he is taking us on his journey to his created perfection, his blessing, his fulfillment, his forever ruling and reigning, and one day to walk with us and restore all things as they should be. This is that Christ. This is Advent. And while we wait for the fullness of these, these things, we can sing the same words of that hymn in that way also. As we look for his appearing, we can say, come, thou long expected Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are so blessed and wonderful and beautiful. Would we, would we desire you in the truest sense, even now, Thank you for the beauty of all this fulfillment, all of this wonder, all of these promises kept. Thank you for your work. Would we find our rest now in you as we wait? And uh, Lord, would we share these themes even today, starting with hope as being found only in Jesus Christ this Advent season? Would we live out the freedom that you've bought for us as being dead to sin and alive to you? And would you be glorified in us as we serve you? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll invite you to stand and we'll have a song of response at this time. Thinking of uh, desiring Jesus in his coming, we'll sing the song as the deer. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee.